You're listening to the 66 Podcast, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time in a three-step process. And today, we're excited because this is our last episode on the prophecy of Daniel. And we are going to try to cover, well, we're not going to try to do it, we're going to do it. Uh, We're going to cover chapters 10, 11, and 12 of the book of Daniel. And we're going to find a lot of interesting stuff in here. This is the final vision that comes in the second half of the book of Daniel. So this is the fourth vision that we have studied thus far. If you'll recall, so far we've talked about the vision of the four beasts from chapter 7. Some very interesting creatures there that we identify with different political powers. Then we talked about the vision of the ram and the goat, which was similar in the respect that it involved two different world powers. And then in Daniel 9, we talked about last episode, the vision of the 70 weeks, and we called that one the 70s. And now today we are talking about a vision that this angel that speaks to Daniel, and we'll talk more about him later, but this angel who's never identified speaks to Daniel and tells him that he's going to tell him about the end of times. And Drew, before you give us the outline Um, I'm going to steal a line from your notes um, where you have listed the main idea of the prophecy here. And now that I say that, (laughs) that, I can't can't find it. Here it is. Yeah, 1014. It was on this other page of notes. (laughs) Oh, yeah, this is like the key verse, right? Yeah. So the key verse here, this is the angel speaking to Daniel. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For this vision is for days yet to come. And we have to, whenever we see those phrases, latter days, days yet to come, we always read it from our perspective. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a dangerous thing to do. We get the interpretation wrong when we do that. We have to think, what did that mean to Daniel? And uh, we're going to see some stuff about the end of time, but we're also going to see some things that were future for Daniel, but are history for us. And I just say that at the onset because we are calling this episode the vision of the time of the end. But, um, you know, we have to be careful with that because to us that means judgment day, but not necessarily to Daniel. Mm -hmm. Uh, More on that later. Let's get into the text. Uh, We're going to read a few things here to get a good foundation for our discussion. And we're going to start in Daniel chapter 10, which uh, begins telling us how this final vision came to Daniel. In verse 2, we read, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. In other words, he didn't take a bath, he ate very little, he spent three weeks mourning. Uh, Doesn't say exactly what he'd been mourning about. We know that he was really disturbed by the last vision that we talked about, and there were some bad things in store for his people in that vision at the end of chapter 9. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to podcast number 71. And we really wish we had worked it out where our episode entitled The 70s had fallen on episode 70. But we, yeah, we weren't, we're not that smart, folks. Yeah. We we uh, attempt to get there, but we never quite get there. Next time we'll plan it for episode 70. Right, right. Now, uh, we are given a hint about what was wrong with Daniel in verse 1. It's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, 535, 534 B.C., something like that, just a few years prior to Daniel's death. Cyrus began his reign, or near the beginning of his reign, he let the Jewish people out of Babylonian, uh, Babylonian prisons or Babylonian exile. And so he also gave them building materials and sent them home to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And if you go to the books of Ezra or uh, Haggai, Zechariah, you will learn that they were able to get the altar built and the foundation of the temple built, but then for like 16 years, they procrastinated finishing the temple. It could be that that caused mourning on, on Daniel's part, uh, it certainly mm-hmm. caused a great deal of mourning for Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra, not Ezra, um, Haggai, Zechariah, and the Lord and many other people mm-hmm. involved. 
Uh, so that may be it. We're not told exactly what it was. Um, Daniel's going to get this final vision, which has to do with the great earthly war. But before we're given any details about it, we're given a glimpse of what goes on in the spirit realm. So this is where it gets really interesting. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Now that's a pretty impressive picture that he sees there. Mm-hmm. Daniel, the angel comes to Daniel, touches him, raises him up, and uh, still Daniel stands there trembling. So the angel begins to speak of a war from which he's just returned. Verse 12, he says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with with the kings of Persia. And this brings us to the key verse. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So he still hasn't gotten to the vision. He's just setting it all up and explaining why he was so late in coming, Daniel having been praying and fasting for three weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was because there was some interference by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and he got help from another prince named Michael. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we're reading this, we start to realize that these aren't princes as we think of princes, but angels. Right. Michael being a famous archangel who's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, this prince of the kingdom of Persia obviously being someone that has extraordinary power, a supernatural presence. And so there's been a war in the spirit realm. And I'm looking forward to talking about some of the implications of that later on. But we must remember that this is just setting up the main point, which is a vision about the time of the end. So we're going we're gonna to get to that in chapter 11 now. And so uh, this angel who... We're not given the name of the angel. He starts telling this, and it begins in chapter 11, speaking of three more kings of Persia, and then a fourth king of Persia who is to be far richer than the others. Verse 2, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches... He shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. That rich king has to be Xerxes, uh, 486 to 465 B.C., because Xerxes is the Persian king who tried to defeat the Greek city-states, and and he failed at it. Correct. Um, The three, if you're interested, that preceded him after the death of Cyrus, the current king was Cambyses, uh, then one known as Pseudo-Smyrdas or Galmata, uh, that Galmata was an imposter who pretended to be a, a, a descendant of Cyrus, but really wasn't. He reigned briefly in 522 B.C. And then Darius the Great, not to be confused with Darius the Mede, who came mm-hmm. before him and reigned alongside Cyrus. Very confusing, I know, but history buffs might appreciate some of that information. So anyway, uh, we're talking about Xerxes, and um, there were invasions into Greece. And that was a major factor in the campaign of Alexander the Great, Although it occurred more than a century uh, later, Alexander came more than a century later. Uh, Daniel says in verse 3, Then a mighty king, Alexander, shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Verse 4 speaks of how Alexander's kingdom would be divided into four parts after his death. And we've seen that more than once in earlier visions, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, After Alexander died prematurely and unexpectedly, the Greeks didn't know what to do but to divide it up among his four generals. And so you see this number four following a big horn or, you know, uh, whatever's representing Alexander. So we're thinking about the Greeks quite a bit. 
And from that point on, Daniel's vision concerns two of the four kingdoms that came out of these four generals. Syria, which is referred to as the north, and Egypt, which is referred to as the south. So I just gave you a big key to understanding Daniel chapter 11. Syria is north, Egypt is south. Why are those two kingdoms important? Because they're on the north and the south of Palestine, the home of the Jewish people, God's people at that time. And so to them, these were very important uh, kingdoms. Their stability ensured the stability of the Jews. Their instability ensured the instability of the Jews. So it was a very important place. Verses 5 through 20, and we talked about this, Andrew, are so full of details Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to read them because if you're listening, there is no way you would be able to register any of it. I think that I do want to give you a flavor of what it's about by picking out a small portion, verses 6 through 9, which is a prophecy of a daughter of the king of the south. And I just want to give you an example of how detailed these prophecies are, how predictive in nature they are, how accurate they can be, by just reading those verses and giving the historical context to them. So verse 6 begins, After some years they shall make an alliance. These are the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Now I'm already getting mixed up between who's the king of the south and who's the king of the north. It's just a lot for the brain to handle. But verse 9 says, Then the latter, uh, the king of the north, we assume, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. That's how it goes all the way down to verse 20. And I've just read a few verses there. But I want to point out how accurate that that turned out to be. Um, There was a woman in, in the near future from Daniel. Her name was Berenice, and she was Egyptian. She was from Egypt daughter of Ptolemy II, um, the Greek ruler of the Egyptian province at that time. And she was married to Antiochus II, Theos, to form an alliance between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. Now, unless you've looked at this before, all of that just went over your head, I realize. The uh, Ptolemies were the Greeks that ruled Egypt. The Seleucids were the Greeks that ruled Syria, okay? So, but there was a problem. Antiochus II was already married. And when has that been a problem with these guys? But I guess it's yeah, a problem right. now. So he was already married to a woman named Laodice, I'm guessing at the pronunciation there, who conspired to have her husband poisoned and Berenice and the son she had with Antiochus assassinated. And at this time, Berenice's father, Ptolemy II, died. So as you would expect, retaliation followed. Berenice had a brother, Ptolemy III, whom Daniel calls a branch from her roots. And uh, this Egyptian ruler, he attacked Syria and returned to Egypt with 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 objects that had been in the cities and the temples of the northern kingdom. So everybody got that? Very simple, right? Bottom line, we have... From this, there's there's a lot of prophecies that wind up being just extremely down to the smallest detail, which is why it's so difficult to read because there's so many details listed. But all these details have a historical parallel that comes many, many, many years later. This being the case of a daughter of one kingdom marries the daughter of another, and there is an alliance. No, marry, then, no daughter doesn't marry daughter. Oh, right. Yeah, you know what daughter I mean. Daughter marries son. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um... And then um, one of the kings here is going to carry off to Egypt the metal images and vessels of the other kingdom. And that's from verse 8. So it's 
it's really shocking how detailed we don't ex I guess we've just gotten to the point where with prophecies we don't expect this level of detail yeah. to be revealed but he's revealing some of the you know inner workings of the kingdoms here coming a long way down the road yeah and let me add that nobody contends with the details as we're calling them everybody agrees that these things happened just as Daniel says they happened Mm -hmm. They agree with the analogies. You know, this symbol goes with this person. This symbol goes with that person. The disagreement has uh, become over when this book was written. Yeah, some people want to say it must have been written after these events, right? Yeah, because they don't believe in the miracle of prophecy. The problem with that is some of the events predicted occurred in the 2nd century B.C., and we may not... I mean, I feel that we have a pretty good grasp of when Daniel was written uh, based on internal evidence and, and um, traditions of the Jews and some external evidence. However, um, we do have a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Septuagint, right. which was completed during the time of the events that we're reading about, which also includes mm -hmm. Daniel, which means we have a translation that goes back before some of these events that contains the book of Daniel. So even if you don't agree that Daniel was a 6th century prophet, you can't argue with the historical fact that these prophecies were taken down, some of them, long before the events they describe happened. Right. So the Septuagint was commissioned in 250. BC. Yeah, it wasn't finished in 250, but they, they started working on it then. Yeah, and then some of these events that we have come almost 100 years later. And and it's in Greek because the Greeks came into power and mm -hmm. spread Greek culture all over the place. And uh, we'll talk about some other events in a moment that uh, kind of relate to this. But let's, let's skip forward to verse 21 of Daniel chapter 11, which concerns a character we've already been introduced to, Antiochus Epiphanes. The master of intrigue. The master of it. You beat me to it, but he's described... <laughs> as the master of intrigue in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, and uh, rules by cunning and deceit, chapter 8, verse 25. And so here Daniel is going back to him and describing how he obtains the kingdom of the north, Syria, the Seleucid kingdom, by flatteries. That's in verse 21. Now at first, Antiochus easily sweeps through Egypt, conquering its territories and plundering its wealth, and meets very little resistance. That's described in verses 22 through 28. But when he decides on another military campaign, the outcome is, is a little bit different. Let's read verses 29 and following. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Okay, again, impossible to really follow unless you've been steeped in this for the last six months or something, but... Mm -hmm. um, this is this is a different outcome from Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he has been very powerful up to this point. Kittim, which you saw early on in the reading, that refers to the West in general, so Rome. Rome was not an empire during Antiochus' time, but it was growing in strength. And um, Antiochus, um, he encounters these Roman uh, warships during his time. Here, here's the history. When Antiochus Epiphanes was on his way to invade Egypt, he was intercepted by the Roman fleet under the command of a guy named Papalius Leonis. 
this guy de- demanded that the Greek general, Antiochus, return to Palestine. Antiochus asked for time to consult with his advisors, but Papalius drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and ordered him to summon his counselors and deliberate on the spot. And if he stepped out of the circle without first agreeing to return to Palestine, Rome would declare war. So Antiochus backed down, had no choice, but he was furious. Now this is that little horn that we read about in in chapter Mm 8. Big temper, really short short on patience, Mm -hmm. wicked, violent, crude. And so you can imagine how humiliated a guy like that was for this Roman general to back him down like that in front of everybody. So as a result, Antiochus was taken down by a... Wait, I skipped something. So he's told to go back to Palestine. And what do people usually do when they're humiliated by a guy bigger than them? They go find somebody smaller than them to pick on Mm -hmm. and take their rage out on them because they can't take it out on the big guy. It's like the parable that Jesus told about the unforgiving servant. This king forgave him, and then he goes and finds a guy under him that owes him a little bit of money and starts choking him and telling Mm -hmm. him to pay back the debt. So frustrated men do this all the time. And Antiochus went into Jerusalem with 20,000 men against the Holy Covenant, as Daniel puts it, and abolishes temple worship. And then he offers swine flesh upon the altar so that he desecrates the altar where the daily offerings were made to God. And this is what is referred to in verse 31 as the abomination that makes desolate. This led to a successful Jewish rebellion led by somebody you may have heard of before, Judas Maccabeus, in 166 B.C. And for a short period of time, almost 100 years, the Jews gained independence from all of these empires. Uh, Mm -hmm. Greece, Persia, Babylon, after being exiled and imprisoned and uh, dominated by these people for so long, they gained their independence until Rome comes in and takes it back away from them. Uh, The rest of it, verses 36 through 45, seem to describe a fourth campaign against Egypt. Um, Critics of the Antiochus interpretation point out there's no historical correlation between these verses and the ones preceding them. But a third century philosopher, uh, Porphyry, argued that a fourth conflict between Antiochus and Egypt did occur the year before the death of Antiochus. But, you know, if you don't believe it, you're not going to believe it. If if you do believe it, you're going to stick with it. So it's, it's an interpretation that's not as important to us today as it was to the people Daniel was writing to. And so it's best to, to look at the last part of Daniel chapter 11 as the conclusion of Antiochus' reign. Uh, We don't have a whole lot of history on it, but that doesn't mean this prophecy isn't true. Um, So that's chapter 11. Very quickly, we get to chapter 12, which is shorter, only 13 verses. And it begins speaking of that time. That is the time of the end that's mentioned in chapter 11, verse 40. And uh, you see that phrase several times in chapter 8 as well. It doesn't have to do with the end of the world. I think what we're looking at here is the end of the Old Testament era. Um, Daniel 12, 1 may have to do with Antiochus' persecution where he offers the swine on the altar. Um, we read that Michael arises, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. I, that is wide open to interpretation, but if you put it together with what Daniel has just been talking about, and if you believe Daniel chapters 10 through 12 are one coherent vision, uh, then it makes sense to put this in with the things that occurred under Antiochus. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else? Um <laughs> Let's go to verse 2, a very important verse to Christians. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now we have a clear promise of a bodily resurrection in the Bible, Um, one of the first. And I realize that, you know, there's a big jump from saying Antiochus in verse 1 and the end of time in verse 2. But I really don't see any other way to look at it. Um, There are problems with attributing verse 1 
to the end of time, and there are problems with attributing verse 2 to the end of the Old Testament era. So we just have to think that maybe they're lumped together because they both fit into the category of the end of an important era. Uh, Antiochus marking the end of the Old Testament era, and the resurrection, of course, marking the end of the world. Um, an angel asks, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Chapter 12, verse 6. Uh, he longed for information he could not understand. And the answer in verse 7 is, A time, times, and half a time. You might remember from some of our discussion in numeric symbology uh, last episode that that mm -hmm. time, times, half time, or three and a half, that often stands for an indefinite period of time. It's half of seven, so it's indefinite, and the end of it will come suddenly and unexpectedly. Right. Um, Daniel's confused, so don't feel bad. In verse 8, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he's given some numbers, but he can't make any sense out of them in verses 11 and 12. So it ends like that. In verse 13, go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Um, Daniel's not given all the answers. We are not given all the answers. It ends in mystery, which is as it should be, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that was really, really boring, Andrew. What do you, what do you think? Can you make this exciting for us? Uh, not boring. There's, I think it's really interesting. We're, I mean, it wasn't boring a... to me, but my... my Nah. Explanation, my reading was boring today. It was a lot of material. I stayed awake for most of it. Um, uh, I thought it was pretty good. It's a really interesting vision. It's not as visual as the other ones, you know, with yeah. the beasts and the goat and the ram. And, and the last one, I guess, the 70s wasn't very, you know, there wasn't something for us to kind of attach on to as yeah. we read. But for this one, for me, it's it's shocking, and we just gave a couple instances of how detailed the prophecy really was, and how it came to be. And there's there's so much stuff packed into this prophecy that we'll come back after a short break, and we'll start to hopefully open up a few of these different aspects of the prophecy and dig a little bit deeper. final prophecy of Daniel, there's one thing that I think stands out, and that is the sheer amount of, I guess, interactions with the spiritual world or spiritual realm, whatever you want to call it, that Daniel is having. Daniel is seeing a lot of things and hearing about a lot of things that most people do not. And I've got three takeaways from uh, the things we can learn about this spiritual world uh, the spiritual realm in which these angels that Daniel's been talking to live. And the first takeaway is pretty obvious, and that is that the spiritual world is actually there. It's real. Uh, beings like this do exist. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha prays that his servant, uh, that his servant's eyes can be opened to what's really around him. And he prays, and then he opens his eyes, and he sees all these horses and chariots um, of fire around uh, ready to go to battle with them against the enemy that they see coming uh, off in the distance. Uh, in Joshua 5, Joshua meets with the captain of the host, uh, captain of the Lord's army. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 53, uh, Jesus lets his apostles know that if he wanted to, he could call, uh, was it 12 legions Yeah, 12 of legions angels. of angels, which yeah, is could, like legions, like 6,000. So a Roman legion was, was, so that's a lot. Yeah, Thousands. that's a lot. Yeah, 72,000, right? Uh, six times 12 is 72. I have no idea. I think so. Six times two is 12 times 10. Okay, right. close enough. Uh, all the math people are cringing. Um, but these angels are real. There is really a world uh, in which these kinds of things happen, and we don't typically focus on these things, I think, because um, maybe we think they're a little 
obscure and, and given we don't know much about them, but we can know for certain that this kind of world is out there. Uh, number two, angels are a part of the spiritual world. Angels were the word uh, angel just simply means messenger. So these are the messengers of God, the ones that are going to go from God to deliver his message to the prophets who then in turn delivered, deliver that message to the people. Uh, only two angels are mentioned by name in Scripture, Gabriel and Michael, and they're both mentioned here in Daniel. Um, they're mentioned elsewhere, uh, Revelation, they're mentioned uh, Jude, they're, uh, Michael at least is mentioned. Um, but we don't know exactly, and Drew, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we don't really know where angels come from or came from. No, well, they must be created, right? right? Because they're not God, mm-hmm. and only God is eternal. Yeah. And if they're not God and they're not human, um, they they are a special group of created beings, but they are created. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we can know that much about their origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is also said somewhere in Job that they were around during the creation. Yeah. So they were created before mankind was created. Yeah. And they, they were there for the creation of the world. Yeah, and it's uh, David in the Psalms who says that we were created a little lower than yeah. these types of beings. Mm-hmm. So angels are this, kind of like you said, they're, they predate humanity. They are, and as they're... Higher than us. Yeah, they're higher than us. You can see that in the description that Daniel gives of this particular angel. They're always depicted as being really bright, flaming, you know, they're... Powerful. Yeah, their voices are like, was it here? A uh, multitude of voices. Yeah, so they're they're real loud, they're bright, they're shiny. It always sca- They always scare everybody they talk yeah. to. So apparently they're, they're a sight to behold and maybe one that you don't necessarily want to see. Um, but that's just a little bit on what these angels are. And then in the last place, the third takeaway is that spiritual conflict really takes place. And Drew, you laid out the the conflict going on here very nicely in the first section. But basically you have this particular angel who, by the way, we don't really have a solid identification of who this one is. Right. It yeah. could have been Gabriel. Based on the last few chapters, we might think so. But Drew, you pointed out in the break that it seems like Daniel would have said that this is Gabriel also. Yeah, I mean, he's been talking about Gabriel. Yeah. Why Why be tight-lipped at this point? Or maybe have even recognized him, you know? Yeah, I've that, seen this guy. He yeah, keeps bothering me every what's time. What's going on, Gabriel? But now he's, you know, he's scared I, I to death. Yeah, I don't think he's acting like Gabriel. Uh, he is delivering a message, and that's a Gabriel thing, but it's also an angel thing because the Greek term for angel, angelos, means mm-hmm. messenger. Yeah. So just because he's delivering a message, that doesn't make him a unique angel. Right. Uh, that's kind of their main job. Right. Yeah, and we uh, said only two are mentioned by name, that being Gabriel and seems Michael. more warlike than Gabriel. Yeah, and Maybe. he's apparently, he is a, and a, this might, you can stop me here, but this might be a little too much speculation, but apparently he's like on par with these princes that he's talking about in Persia and Greece. He refers to Michael as a chief prince, uh, which makes him, I guess, a little higher. But somehow, this particular angel has come into contact. He's He is battling the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. In verse 20, he says, Do you know why I have come? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. I'll tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. <laughs> so it's okay. almost... No, no, you go ahead. All right, all right. So I hesitate to bring this up, but it's okay. obvious because there's a prince for Persia, uh, a Persia angel. Mm. There's a Greece angel. And your prince must mean the Jews' prince. Yeah. You know, because Daniel is the one he's talking to. And they're all fighting. Mm -hmm. And so are the countries they're aligned with, 
fighting. And we've been talking about in Daniel the theme of sovereignty. That's what we say the main theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. Yeah. He, he rules in the kingdoms of men, appoints whom he will. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that God was in charge and that Nebuchadnezzar could not do anything without him. Mm-hmm. And Christians usually look at these things, and this is how I look at them. They, most of the time, God is sovereign in his permissive will. Like uh, Babylon destroyed the Jews because God stepped back and allowed that to happen. It was like a combination of Babylon and God's removing his protection from the people that brought about the Babylonian conquest. But here we have the, it's almost like, I'm not saying it's what it is, but I'm just saying, I'm opening this up. It appears that there's some kind of war in the spiritual realm that has an analog in the physical world Mm -hmm. where if the prince of Persia prevails, Persia prevails. If the prince of Greece prevails, Greece prevails. If the prince of Jerusalem prevails, Michael, then Jerusalem prevails. But then I don't understand any of that if that is the case. I mean, what does that do to the free agency of men, uh, the choices we make? Um, I don't believe that God steps in and keeps us from making our own decisions. It's way beyond us. It, it There's looks, just a lot more going on in the invisible world than what is going on in the visible world. Yeah, I think we just that's have to good, leave it at that. I think that's a good way to put it. There's a lot more going on in the world we can't see on top of the world that we can see. And Paul says something like that in Ephesians chapter 6 um, when he starts talking about the armor of God. He says, put on, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yeah. So Paul's kind of keeping things in perspective, saying, look, there is this spiritual th- side of things going on, and that is what's most important. That's the, that's the big deal here. And we know who comes out victorious or who will come out victorious at the end of all this. Uh, but Drew, you brought up something. If we don't like this, we can just cut this out of the recording. But this <laughs> we um, never do that. Yeah, uh, this verse twenty you brought up how these princes go with each nation. It reminds me a lot of Greek mythology. Of you know, each city state has its own yeah. patron patron uh, idol. Mm-hmm. Patron, uh, patron false god. <laughs> I was just about mashed yeah. those words up for you. Yeah. Uh, patron false god, and it's I don't know. It's very interesting to me that it looks like Jerusalem has a prince. Um, and if you've ever read, and this is the only place in the whole Bible where you see that. Yeah, yeah, it's very odd. If you've ever read, and Drew, I think you've read a couple of these books. Uh, the the C.S. Lewis books, the science fiction ones. When yeah. the guy goes to space oh, yeah. and everything. He borrows from, from this. It must be from Daniel 10 and 11. Yeah, it looks like he borrows right from the, this because yeah. he has the same sort of... I mean, that's a complete work of fiction. I but hadn't if, thought about that, but yeah. It reminded me, that was the first thing my mind went to when we read this. Uh, so if you've ever read that book, it's very interesting how uh, the symbolism, I guess, that C.S. Lewis puts in there to represent biblical themes... Uh, but either way, regardless of how much, you know, and we hesitate to get too deep into um, these angels ascribed to different countries and what that means. And Well, let me tell you why. Okay, uh, okay so here's, I want to say this, and this might belong in the appla- uh, application section, but in the book of Colossians, we have things like this from Paul. Um, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together. He goes on. And Paul warns about this all the time in the letters uh, to Timothy and Titus. Don't get carried away in myths. Don't get carried away with genealogies. Don't get carried away with angels. Well, I can see how that can happen. Church services turned into debates over what Daniel 10 and 11 means. And Paul is saying, don't give in to the temptation 
to overwhelm yourself with curiosities when you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's what it is about. Um, be content with mystery and be amazed and in awe of God and the spirit world, but don't lose your focus. And so I, I want to throw that in because you and I are you know, throwing these things out and they're saying, but we'll never know. And there may be some people listening, saying, getting frustrated with us and thinking, well, you know, they, they don't have any answers. They don't know. We don't know, and we're not meant to know. Well, Daniel didn't you know, know either. Daniel didn't know. Exactly. Daniel said, I don't understand. Right. The whole half of chapter 12 is about how an angel doesn't understand, and Daniel doesn't understand, and that's mm-hmm. okay, the end. That's just kind of how the whole thing ends. Yeah, that's exactly how it ends. And wait, what's wrong with parts of the Bible, instead of causing us to understand, cause us to be awe-stricken? Mm-hmm. Isn't worship a big part of the Christian lifestyle? So if God gives us some things to aid in our worship by dumbfounding us, that seems appropriate to me. Yeah. Let me say something else also. We're talking about the spirit world and how it's just as real as the physical world. There's this whole thing going on we don't even know about. That, by the way, reminds me of Job. And I think I've brought up the um, engravings of William Blake before, but if you've never checked out William Blake's engravings for the book of Job, uh, Google that and look at it, because there are a lot of them where you have Job and his family, maybe, or his friends sitting on the ash heap, and then there's like this line above his head, and you see this whole angelic host looking down, God too, looking down on Job and seeing all these things. And Job is totally unaware of that whole other reality. Um, You know, the more we discover in physics and science, the more we theorize, the closer we get to proving this theoretically, scientifically is what I mean. Um, You know, Einstein started theorizing about the space-time continuum and he visualized it as a fabric. Um, space and time were interwoven and four-dimensional. And if space-time is four-dimensional, that means you can be outside of space and time. Mm-hmm. Which means if that theory is true, and it hasn't been proven true yet, but it hasn't been disproven, uh, if it is true, then... This is within the realm of possibility, even according to science. Yeah, scientifically possible. So we're not yeah. just talking about crazy, supernatural... I, I know it sounds you crazy. You lost me here kind yeah. of stuff. Right. I know it sounds crazy, but science even says things like this. I mean, it doesn't talk about angels, but right. it talks about the fact that what we live in, the dimension that we live in, there's something outside of that dimension. Yeah, it at least allows for the possibility of this kind of world to be there. Yeah, this kind of the only difference is Christians talk about angels and God and heaven and hell and scientists talk about time travel yeah so who's who's crazier you know it's it's yeah that's true I don't know it's mind-blowing anything else I know I got us off track well there's a ton there's a lot more stuff to think about here but I think what we want to do is we'll take another quick break and then we'll come back and we'll give a few applications and we'll give our just kind of closing thoughts on See if we can find any applications. I mean, you know, it's a real challenge when you're reading a prophecy like this that just blows your mind and that is so tied to ancient history that has nothing whatsoever to do with 21st century America, for example. It's really hard to find lessons. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I mean, let's dwell, first of all, on what we can learn just from the the fact of predictive prophecy, which is what we've been reading this whole time. If we've been talking about Greece, if we have been talking about uh, Palestine, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, all those things, we're reading about something that was said in the 6th century that relates to the 2nd century B.C. and uh, or 3rd century B.C., whatever. 
No, second century. <laughs> okay. So, uh, predictive prophecy, what can it teach us? It can teach us a lot of things. Uh, first of all, if these prophecies are made in the name of the Bible's God, then that God and not another is the true God. Only God can predict the future in this kind of detail. Mm-hmm. Only God. Um, and so this is in the Bible, not in another book, not in another culture, not in uh, the name of another God. And so if this God predicts the future, then he is the God. And whatever we learn about him in the book of Daniel or the other 65 books of the Bible is how we should picture God. And it's a beautiful picture, by the way, a God of love and mercy uh, faithfulness and a God with an eternal nature and who promises us a future. Mm-hmm. Another thing is um, the prophecies that are in the Bible prove that the Bible is God's book. So, you know, people say, well, how do I know that the Bible is inspired? Which is a, an important question to ask because, I mean, Everything we learn about Christianity and God is in the Bible. And so a thinking individual will naturally ask, well, okay, that's fine that the Bible says that, but how do I know that the Bible is from God? Well, there are many evidences pointing to uh, the inspiration of the Bible. One of them is what we've been looking at, predictive prophecy. If a guy in the 6th century could tell you all these things that are happening in the 2nd century then he must have been inspired because you can't do that without supernatural help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me there was a debate a while ago between Kyle Butt and um, what's the guy's name? Barker, Dan Barker. Yeah, Dan Barker. Yeah. Um, and they were arguing about the existence of God, and or excuse me, they were debating the existence yeah. of God. And Barker said the one thing that would get him to believe in God was if that you told him, like, on January 1st, 2018, a meteor from space made up of 10% this and 90% this would strike his house at exactly, you know, 12.02 p.m., then he would believe in God. That would be enough to get him to believe. But, you know, the foolish thing, and this is what I believe, uh, Kyle Butt pointed out, he said, well, the Bible's already done that. Yeah, we just read that. Yeah, we just read that. Daniel 11 is your meteor. Yeah, and we just gave him, or we just gave everybody, you know, the the really short blurb about the daughter of the Prince of the South. Right. uh, Marrying the daughter of the Prince of the North. Yeah. Uh, And then, but there's so much more in that chapter, so many more details that line up perfectly, that when you see something like this that you said is written so many years before it happens, then common sense tells you. And we have, you know, the proof of this had this book had to have been written before these events took place because it was there in Greek, you know, at the time when the Septuagint was put together, it's there. So there's no argument that it came after some of these events occurred. So it's definitely written before. It histori- historically, you can't argue that Daniel came after the events that it predicted. So you are left with basically two choices. Either this is a the most ridiculous coincidence ever, or this guy knew what he was talking about. Yeah. Which means this is a real book, or this is a book of truth from a God of truth as well. Yeah. Which leads you into, you know, all the other teachings leads you to accept the rest of the scripture. Yeah. Uh, here's another lesson. Uh, the fulfillment of prophecy also tells us that the God who disclosed all of these events is a God who keeps his promises to his people. All the things, except for the bodily resurrection at the end of time, which I'm going to get to in a moment, all of these things have come to pass just as God said they would. I mean, just like, you know, in some of the easier chapters to understand in Daniel, the Lord said, uh, hey, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't give me glory, you're going to lose your mind. And then he loses his mind, just as the Lord said he would. Um, 
so we've been looking at example after example of how God stays true to his word and accomplishes everything his word says. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of great promises to us that have been made by God who never lies. And that, you know, gives us great hope. Um, let me get, I don't, I don't feel like I did justice to Daniel 12 too. Let's go back to that to get some, to get another lesson or two. Um, you know, after all this talk about Antiochus, and I and I even tried to argue that verse 1, I don't know if I was successful in it, but that verse 1 of chapter 12 was about Antiochus Epiphanes. You have in verse 2 something that sounds very much like a Christian scripture. Um, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth that has to be the dead shall awake, some of them to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, or like the stars. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right, there's a lot of stuff in there. First of all, though, uh, why is Daniel talking about the resurrection right on the heels of talk about Antiochus Epiphanes? A lot of people who think that those passages that I'm attributing to Antiochus that, that think that's about the Antichrist or something like that, say, see there, the resurrection is brought up in the context of this discussion. So mm-hmm. we're talking about the Antichrist, not some historical figure. I disagree um, because a lot of times when people are troubled, the end of time is brought up in, in um, the resurrection. For example, First mm-hmm. Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, you know, the people are grieving over persecution uh, in First Thessalonians 4, he says, I, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Hang on. At the end of time, the Lord's coming back. He's bringing back his victorious saints with him. Those who are here will meet them in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. So encouragement from a God point of view, from a biblical point of view, is this will end. This whole world will end. I mean, that's Hard for us to do, but it's because we haven't spent enough time in the Bible. What does he do in 2 Thessalonians? The exact same thing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says there, uh, you, those who afflict you will be afflicted by God. Uh, the Lord is coming back with his mighty angels in flaming fire to exact vengeance on those who do not know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is again. Uh, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 Thessalonians 1. So why is it so unusual for us to be reading Daniel? And Daniel says, uh, your people are going to be afflicted, but just wait because um, many of those who sleep shall awake to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And so I think that explains how we could go from Antiochus Epiphanes to the resurrection in one verse. Mm-hmm. And whether you buy it or not, that's up to you, but, but I think it's very sensible. Um, now, we learn a lot about the resurrection here in this Old Testament passage. One thing that we see is that it is, um, there, there is a simultaneous resurrection of the wicked and the righteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the premillennial idea has it that the righteous will rise first in the rapture, and then there will be seven years of persecution and tribulation, after which time the wicked will rise and uh, all will be judged before God. Um, so you have that theory up against this and other passages like John 5, 28, 29, which describe a simultaneous resurrection of the uh, righteous and the wicked all at the same time. And another really interesting thing here is a hint that there will be degrees of reward in heaven. A look at verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, it's not really clear, but it seems here that he's saying, you know, there are some who lead some to righteousness, Mm -hmm. and then there are some that lead many to righteousness, and those are going to shine like the stars. Mm -hmm. They'll all be raised to um, everlasting life, but some are going to shine brighter than others. And there are other passages that go along with that. Um, in Luke 14, um, 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. There's others that talk mm-hmm. about degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. 
Um, so uh, one last thing. Sounds like you're pretty much done. <laughs> well, I'm know. just at this point. I'm listening. I'm learning a lot at uh, the moment. Well, Hopefully, let me, let me throw most one of our more listeners in. are as well. Um, Daniel doesn't have all the answers, right? Neither do we. We should never act like we do. We should never get frustrated that we don't know all the answers. Uh, you know, Jesus told us in Mark thirteen thirty two that uh, you know he, the angels in heaven don't know the time of his coming. Neither the Son. He yeah. he doesn't even know himself, but only the Father. And so our work is to stay awake, be watchful, mm-hmm. um, be ready for the master of the house to come. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if a prophet like Daniel doesn't have all of the answers, we don't need to get frustrated if we don't have all the answers. We have enough. Right. And, and that's good enough. I think it is perfectly okay for us to make the same statement that Daniel said when he says, I do not understand. Yeah, you know, and it's so. actually quite honorable for us. He to says, do. "I heard, but I did not understand." Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I feel he wasn't even married. Yeah, right. I feel the same way about um, a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. You know, I've heard it now. I've read it. I do not understand. There's a lot of it I don't understand, and I have no problem. <laughs> yeah, saying that, and I know something they teach you uh, in school is. Uh, if you're going to preach, don't act like don't act like you don't know what you're talking about. But mm. in this section, um, I'm not going to pretend like I have everything figured out because that would be a lie, and that would probably be worse. Um, but final thoughts on Daniel? Yeah, real quick. You have any? Um, you know, I'm always hesitant to do this because it's it's like it's. You don't want to rate these books. Yeah, we're not critiquing them. That's it. not what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, we're just talking about impressions. Just personal that we impressions. Got. You know, yeah. Personal preferences. Um, it's always been a book that I've wanted to master, just, just because it's so hard to understand, mm-hmm. and just as we said, it's impossible to master. At least I, for me. Yeah. And so it's frustrating when you get from chapters seven through twelve. Yeah, one through six are they're easy to get a good handle on. Yeah, but we've known those since we were little kids. Yeah. And it's just it's an odd book in that we know the first half of it so well and the second half is rarely, if ever, studied. Uh, there's a good it's reason just, why. Because it's right. so, so much more difficult. Yeah. But I that that's all that I can say about it in that way is that uh it's it's a bit frustrating when you get into the visions. Yeah, um, I agree with you on that. Now I did think, um, thought the first few were intimidating at first, but you know I think the the four beasts is pretty straightforward. Yeah, the ram and the goat is straightforward. Mm-hmm. The seventies is pretty straightforward mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, you know there are a few hanging you know, um, things out there from the 70s that are kind of the, you throw your hands up and you say, well, Daniel didn't know. I don't know either. Uh, but this one is definitely, this last section, 10 through 12, it's the most difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like you said, I think this is one of those things that's very difficult, uh, impossible really to master, especially verse, verses 11 and 12 where it gives the numbers of the days. Um you know, there's really no been no good guess at what all that means. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will say this. Um, in terms of Bible characters, I don't know if you can find a, a man who is, or a woman, who is as flawless as Daniel in the whole Bible, except for Jesus yeah. Christ. I mean, what mistakes did this guy make? I'm sure he made them because he's confessing sin in chapter 9, but they're not recorded. And angels are coming from heaven saying, Oh, Daniel, highly loved. Yeah, several times. Dearly loved. Three times now? Yeah. Three times. I saw it in chapter 10 just a minute ago. Yeah, when he first comes to him. Greatly loved. Man, greatly loved. I think he tells him that twice in chapter 10. I think Maybe so. I'm wrong. I think so. But it just, you know, in that comparison we talked about from Ezekiel between Job, Noah, and Daniel. 
Well, Job was cynical and critical, uh, you know, understandably so. I mean, how many of us would bear up under what Job bore up? Mm-hmm. Uh, at first he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so he did that. But, mm-hmm. you know, we see some flaws of Job to yeah. our relief because we're like, you know, I couldn't come anywhere close to that. Mm-hmm. Noah got drunk. Yeah. That was recorded. What did Daniel do? And then, you know, Abraham, he lied about his wife and um, David had some serious character flaws. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul spent a good part of his life persecuting Christians. How about Joseph? I'm trying to think of... Joseph was a braggart and uh, okay. know-it-all. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Start with. <laughs> At first. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's important for us to see these flaws because we're flawed, and we don't want to think that uh, you have to be perfect. But when you look at Daniel, mm. man, I mean... Did he did he make a mistake? You just don't know. So that's another yeah. thing I get from the book is a great example to to try to attain to, although never will get there. Yeah. Well, um, this wraps it up, and it's been quite a journey. We apologize that we haven't been able to make it clearer than we have, but we really tried. We took a stab at it, and uh, hope that you got a little something from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, we love your feedback. We Go visit us on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. That's always really nice. It helps us in the rankings. And uh, we'd like to get up at the top of all the podcasts that people search for with the number 66 in it. And so uh, we hope you do that. We're looking forward to our next project. It's going to be over in the New Testament. And I guess it's okay to announce it, even if people are listening out of order we're going to be tackling first and second timothy and titus so we invite you to join us on that next time